Good evening and welcome to the Spirit and Life Bible Study. My name is Jonathan. Our reader is Kara tonight and our topic is misunderstood. And who was misunderstood was Jesus when he came into this world. Uh, from the perspective of this Bible study, Jesus was the embodiment of perfect love and perfect truth. And it's just been amazing me that perfect love and perfect truth could come into the world and people could insult him and call him names and be totally wrong about who he is. You know, there's something in the mind that thinks that, well, if you just had clarity, you know, if you just, if you could just hear the truth, you would, you would know it when you heard it. And so here comes the Lord into the world and, and uh, presents himself and people call him some fun, interesting things that we'll be exploring this evening. If you'd like to join us on this journey, you're invited and welcome. Let's open with a prayer, shall we, good friends? Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you are the Word made flesh, the one God of heaven and earth. We thank you for bringing us together in your name. We pray for you to enlighten us as we open the pages of your Word. Amen. Amen. Very good to see you again. Sending love out to all of you online and those on the phone and so on. It feels like a million years since we've been here. And here in the northern hemisphere, we're down at the darkest place part of the year. I know people say December 22nd is the solstice or the 21st this year, whatever it is, but, but the earliest sunset is December the 7th, so we're, we're almost there. And then the sunsets actually start getting later, so it's a, it's a dark time of year right now. And, um, so, and we're talking about being misunderstood. The place I want to start here, if you want to join me, is in John chapter 8. Uh, this is what got me going here. Um, Jesus is having this difficult uh, interchange with um, these people. And, uh, okay, let's start at verse 47. That looks good in John 8. He who is of God hears God's words. Okay, right there. That's important, isn't it? That, that uh, it sort of implies that you have to be of God in order to hear the words of God. Like if you're not of God, there's going to be misunderstandings. Go on. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. Mm, that's it. Well, good night, everyone. That's been a wonderful <laughs> sentence. No, there it is. You know, that's, that's perfect clarity. If you're not of God, you don't hear. And so what is the answer that he gets from people? Mm. Uh, then the Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Okay, there you go. Like two insults for the price of one. You're a Samaritan and you have a demon. Okay, uh, now the Samaritans, as you may know, were people who were brought in. There are various different theories about who they were. But from the uh, New Testament standpoint, the reason Jesus used them in parables a couple of times was that they were reviled. You know, you weren't even supposed to talk to them or have any dealings with them uh, because they were seen as having a kind of hybrid religion. You're not a real Jew. You're not part of the real faith. They worshipped on Mount Gerizim instead of worshipping in Jerusalem. Uh, they had a different kind of set of scriptures. Uh, and so it was oil and water between the two, two groups. Uh, so there's something that delighted me 
in a perverse way, perhaps, <laughs> by the idea that Jesus was called not a real Jew. You know, you're not a real Jew. You know, from my standpoint, what Jesus did was he was the perfect Jew. He came into the world. He followed the Old Testament to the letter and to the spirit of it and, and was glorified, transformed into perfect compassion and perfect truth. And to be called a Samaritan, which is like, you're not one of us. You're kind of a profane hybrid and not a real, real Jew. It just kind of tickled me for some perverse reason. And uh, to also to talk about someone who came into the world and had this tremendous power over hell, that was uh, the, the reason that he came into this world was to deal with hell in a way that was safe and so on. Uh, but uh, so to, for people to say, you're a Samaritan and you have a devil, you know, uh, <laughs> it's just perfectly wrong about who he is and a fascinating response to the statement <laughs> that if you're of God, you can hear God's words, uh, but because you're not of God, you, you can't hear what I'm saying. And they say, well, I know you, you're that Samaritan and, and uh, you have a devil. Um, so, and in fact, look down in verse 52, they kind of keep out a little bit, don't they? Then the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Oh, so oh. they were kind of making it up the first time, I guess. They, they said, uh, don't, don't we say the right thing when we say that you're a Samaritan, you have a devil uh, or a demon. And then he says a few things. And then he's saying, well, now we know that you have a demon because he was saying things about Abraham. Um, now, uh, let's look at Jesus' answer in verse 49. I shouldn't have skipped over mm -hmm. that. Jesus, so they say you're a Samaritan and have a demon. You Jesus, a demon? Jesus answered, "I do not have a demon." Interesting response. Implication being that perhaps he is a Samaritan, or so. Like he doesn't <laughs> deny the Samaritan part, but he denies the having a demon part, which is kind of interesting. And let's go on a little bit. But I honor my father. And you dishonor me. And that's the truth. They, they did dishonor him. And I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Mm, and that's when they say, oh, now we know for sure that you, that you have a demon. Um, let's go look at a few other passages along the same lines. Uh, let's go to Matthew chapter 10, I think might be a good place to go. So turn to the left and go to Matthew chapter 10. Um, it's an interesting statement that the Lord makes in verse 25 there. Oh, let's look at verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Yes. In other words, they had called him Beelzebub. That's, that's what they called the Lord. And they will also have insults for his followers. Now, interestingly, at this point in the text, I believe it's true to say that he had not been called Beelzebub, uh, at least in the text if you see what I mean. You know, in, in real life as it happened probably many times, but it hadn't come up in the text yet. That doesn't come up till chapter 12. Have a look at chapter 12. Um, 
Start at verse 22. Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Okay, so now we find out who Beelzebub is, and he is called Beelzebub two chapters later. Then he said, If they call the master Beelzebub, they'll call you Beelzebub too. Uh, And then he goes into that section about uh, if a kingdom is divided against itself and so on, which is really a good answer as well to the charge that he had a demon, that you'd say, well, uh, then the kingdom is divided against itself. If he's using demonic power to kick out demons, um, it's so upside down, isn't it? And, oh, let's look back at Matthew chapter 11, if you will. Um, It's picking up at verse 16. This is just a fun little passage here. But to what shall I liken this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their companions and saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned to you, and you did not lament. For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. You see, that what wasn't just reserved for Jesus. You've said that about John, too, that he has a demon because he's not... Uh, he's not eating and drinking the same thing that other people are eating and drinking. And then... The Son of Man came eating and drinking. Meaning Jesus. And they say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Okay, that's nice. I like that. Uh, Maybe... Will this work for the camera? Can I write some things on the board? That could. Uh, So we've had Samaritan... That was fun. Um, and has a demon. And then we had like four insults in a row right there, dear reader, didn't we? What were those? Glutton. Uh, glutton. I just think that's magnificent. You wow. know, the most sober, temperate person who ever lived comes and walks on the earth, and we call him a glutton. It's just... It's just wonderful, isn't it? And what else? A wine bibber. Yes, a wine bibber. <laughs> Magnificent. Okay. Friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yes. Friend <laughs> of tax collectors and sinners. Oh, the human race. Aren't we wonderful? Um, so that's how people refer to him. Um I'd like to read some more passages if we can. Uh, Let's turn back to John, if you will. Uh, There's another passage a little earlier. We were in John 8 a moment ago. Let's go back to John 7. And uh, (coughs) let's start at verse 16 just to get a little context. Uh, How about 14? Do I hear 13? Okay. Now, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, 
he shall know concerning the doctrine whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. Very important point, similar to the point that we opened with tonight, is it not? That if you do, if you follow the commandments and so on, then you'll know about the teaching, whether it's of God or whether it's just of human origin. It's a curious thought that there's something you have to do to even get to the point of being able to tell what it is. Isn't there sort of a bootstrap situation in there? You know, lift yourself up by your bootstraps that, that you have to... I mean, how, why would you follow it if you didn't <coughs> believe it? And yet you have to believe it enough to follow it in order to really believe it. it it's a little tricky. You know, how, how do you get to the point where it starts to make sense to you? Go on. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Referring to himself, of course. Did not Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Mm. Why do you seek to kill me? Why do you seek to kill me? He, he adds at the end there, uh, which kind of changes the tone of the discourse a little bit. And, uh, and he, he accuses all of them, you know, none of you keeps the law, which would just be flabbergasting to them because they think all they do all day is, is keep the law. And he's saying none of you keeps the law. And perhaps to back up his point, he says, why, you know, are you plotting to kill me? And what is their response? The people answered and said, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Yeah, you have a demon. You're crazy. Who's seeking to kill you? Could you turn back, good friends, to chapter 5? So we're going back a little bit in the Gospel of John. Um, oh, let's start at verse 10. John 5, verse 10. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. Yes, this person was healed, and Jesus told him to pick up his bed, and the authorities got upset because he was carrying his bed on the Sabbath day uh, when this amazing miracle had happened. Go on. He answered them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, a multitude being in that place. Mm. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Mm. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Now listen to the response in verse 16. This is back in chapter 5. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Okay, back in chapter 5, they did form a plan and rather than delay the whole gratification of killing him till later, they started persecuting him in real time, just a little down payment towards you know where, where we're going. Uh, and then what did Jesus say? But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Yes. Interesting statement. My father's been working, and I have been working. And what was their response to that? Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Fascinating. That simple statement. He says, my father works and I work. 
and they immediately saw what they felt was a blasphemy in it. To them, crystal clear, he made himself equal with God. I mean, that, that's what he just said. That, that was blasphemy. And so the plot redoubled of like, oh, no, we've, you know, we've really got to kill him. So two verses have already mentioned this plot. Okay, and look at John chapter 7, verse 1. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Okay, right. There's a third mention of this plot to kill him. Mm. And so it's come up three times already in the biblical text. So when he says in verse 19, why do you seek to kill me? They say, you have a devil who's, you know, <laughs> oh, just you guys, you know. Uh, you have a devil, you know, who, who's, who's trying to kill you? Uh, this plot starts very early, and it's fascinating to see, I don't have all the scriptures in front of me, but there are a number of references in John to how terrified people were. People were terrified. The parents of one person who had a healing were terrified to say anything, uh, you know, because they knew that Jesus was enemy number one, and they didn't dare support him in any way they couldn't you know they were worried about being kicked out of the synagogue and everything it comes up several times in here that it was just widely known people knew about it everybody knew about this plot so it was no big secret um and but they say that he has a devil when he reveals their plot um okay so uh, let's look at John chapter 1 for a little more philosophical thing. Turn to the left. Jumping around as we often do. This is John chapter 1. It begins with these very sweeping sort of statements about how the Word was with God and the Word was God and so on. And then let's look at... Um, let's pick up a verse 9. This is about Jesus. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. The world did not know him. That's what we're talking about tonight. He was misunderstood. The world didn't know who he was. And then look at this next verse. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Yes, I just think that's tragically sad. And there's an interesting little feature of the Greek in there that you may know about. That uh, there, there's two different in the Greek, the word "own" an adjective can tell you by the ending it has on it whether it means things or people. And the first one means things. He came to his own things, and his own people did not receive him. And uh, so it's very clear that the the own means his own his own people. Uh, it's just amazing to think about. The Lord came into the world and his own people did not receive him. And then the very next verse says that there were some people who received him. What does it say there? But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace full and truth. Full of grace and truth. So 
it just says flat out at one point, his own received him not, and then goes on to say, but as many as did receive him, then he gave them power, uh, and so on. So there's sort of a subtext tonight, isn't there, that there's something that we have to do to come into a condition of being able to understand him. But this is a, a bit of a conundrum, is it not? That there's a... Um, if you do, do people have you ever experienced this in yourself or any other humans, good friends, uh, that you you're you feel certain about something and you're wrong? Uh, do do people sometimes have that, like you jump to a conclusion or something, and. Uh, it's very interesting about people. I tried before Bible study to find the name of this book. I can't remember the name of the book. I read a book a little while ago that I just loved, but I can't remember the name of the book or the name of the title. I apologize. I wanted to tell you about it. But it was a great book about how we deceive ourselves. It was all these kind of examples. The author who wrote it, uh, wrote it, he was, got interested in this research because he, the most vivid memory from his childhood was the day of Pearl Harbor, uh, which is right around this time of year, is it not early December? And he had this vivid memory of the baseball game was playing on the radio, and his father was listening to the baseball game, and so was he, and then it was interrupted by this amazing broadcast about Pearl Harbor and the bombing that was going on, and it was just the most vivid memory from his childhood. And decades later, it dawned on him that you don't play baseball in December. He couldn't possibly have had the most vivid memory of his life. You know, it's bizarre. So he decided to do a study of this. He, he was already interested in this. And then when 9-11 came along in the U.S. and terrible tragedy, he went around as a kind of uh, scientific investigation and he took all these people just a day or two after it happened and he asked them and filmed them and recorded them. Where were you when 9-11 happened? Who were you with? What, what were you thinking? What were you feeling? And all that kind of stuff. And he recorded it. He recorded it on video. And then he went back, and I believe if I remember the book correctly, he went back only a month later and said to them, can I, can I you know, talk to you again? They said, yes. And he said, I want to ask you the same question I asked you before. Just where were you when 9-11 happened? Who were you with? And they, uh, many of them had completely different stories about who they were with. And it was so, is it a vivid memory? It's absolutely vivid. I can taste it. I can feel it. I can see it. I know who was there. And then he would play them the tape of themselves just four weeks earlier talking about what it was like. And they just say, I just can't believe it. I mean, I don't even believe that video. You know, they would not believe the video. A video of themselves talking about it right after the fact. And they couldn't believe it because it had been replaced by this powerful memory of what happened that, that wasn't, you know, wasn't true. There's another story in the book where a, a woman uh, is talking to her doctor and her doctor says, now I know this is a rather bizarre request, but I want you, could you just indulge me? Could you describe me? Just what do I look like? What am I wearing? All that kind of stuff. She said, sure. You're looking like this, and your, your glasses are like this, and you look like you didn't shave today, and you're wearing this kind of whatever, and she just did the whole description. While she's giving this description, he is in another room. Uh, she is blind, and she doesn't know she's blind. She has this condition 
where she's blind and she doesn't know she's blind. She has no idea she's making it up. Now, we're all like this. I mean, our minds are, it is kind of the human condition, right? I mean, none of us, the reason we're so far away from the spiritual sun, uh, if you see what I mean, you know, the, the, like the source of infinite truth, we're, so, we're shielded from it by these kind of spiritual atmospheres because it would destroy us. Like the truth, you know, we couldn't take the truth. We live in this weird world that we make up for ourselves about who we are and who other people are and what happened. Everything. It's kind of sad, but we, we live, you know, miles away from, from reality. And we couldn't handle it if we got a really heavy dose of it. Uh, so it's not surprising that when the Lord came into the world, he was not comprehended. And people thought, well, I think I know what you are. You're, you're like a Samaritan and you have a devil or, you know, they, they have no clue. Uh, they, and, and they don't know they're wrong. You know, they're certain and, and they don't know that they're wrong about it. So the question is, how do you ever, you know, if you're someone who's blind and you don't know you're blind and you make up stuff and you believe it, how do you ever get out of that? What can ever break you out of, you know, how can you be certain about anything when you're so adamant about things that are not right? I mean, it's a little unsettling. Uh, you know, we have, we have wrong ideas. How would you ever get to a true idea? Well, what did it say in John 8? Let's go back there again. Because it gave us a little clue, didn't it? John 8, verse 47. He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. Yeah, so, okay, so there is some kind of a remedy. If you can get to be of God, then you can see more clearly and you can perceive who the Lord is. But how do you get there from your own twisted you know, if you start from a, a kind of warped misunderstanding about who the Lord is, how do you ever get to a better understanding? Especially if you're like adamant about it and people are adamant. I mean, they don't even know they're wrong. You know, it's a, you're a Samaritan and you have a devil. You're a wine bibber, you're a glutton, you know. And there are all these use statements. You know, there's nothing about I may be misperceiving things. You know, you don't hear that in there. I don't hear doubt or sort of hesitation in their voice. It just seems like, no, I'll tell you what's going on, Mr. Jesus. You know, you've got a devil. And, uh, you know, there's, there's this kind of strength of mind that's in there. So how do you get, ever get out of that? Well, it's a very tricky thing. Let's, let's read something. I want to read something. This is, this is, I want to go to the possibly the hardest book in the whole Bible to find. Blink and you miss it. It's Obadiah. It's in the middle of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. So we're just going to have to go into Isaiah in the middle and head to the right. Go through Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. Okay? So it's right after Ob Amos and it's before Jonah. It doesn't even fill two pages in my large print Bible. And look at verse 3 there. It's only one chapter, so it doesn't even have chapters. The pride of your heart has deceived you. Oh, okay. That's what deceived you. Okay. The pride of your heart, that's, that, that's interesting. So the pride of heart is something that deceives us. These people who are so certain about who Jesus is and have this very dark view of him. 
have the certainty because of the pride of heart. Go on, let's just read the rest of the verse there. You who dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, you who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Yes. Go though, on. though you ascend as high as the eagle, and though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, says the Lord. Now, it sounds like an inimical sort of statement, but actually that's the divine love saying, I know how to get you down from that situation where you've deceived yourself. Like the worst, isn't that the worst? Like self-deception. How do you get over self-deception? That's difficult. And it's very important when we're talking about our relationship with the Lord. How do we know who the Lord is? Uh, let's also turn to the New Testament now. If you go to the book of Revelation and back up, you'll go through the epistles of John and then Peter, and I want to get to James. Let's go to James chapter 1. While we're thinking about self-deception. Mm. Uh, let's pick, pick up at verse 21 because it's a favorite of mine there. James chapter 1. Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Yes. Do you see what's going on there? There is a repentance passage that we have to lay aside the filthiness and so on. And then we're in a position to receive with meekness. Isn't that the opposite in a delightful way of what we just read? That the pride of your own heart lifts you up. I'll make my nest among the stars. You know, we, we have this overly exaggerated opinion about ourselves. If we're willing to lay apart that evil and so on, then we can receive with meekness. That's what we need, some humility. The word is already engrafted. Is that what it says? And it's able to save our souls, but we're not receiving it with meekness until we lay, get some of that evil out of the way. And tell me how I would do that, dear James. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Yeah. Interesting. So those who deceive themselves are those who are not following the word. It's challenging. How, how do you get out of that situation? Go on. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. Yes. For he observes himself. He observes himself. So you look in the mirror, like a person looking in the mirror. You look in the mirror, and then what? Goes away. You go away. So you look in the mirror, you go away. And immediately forgets what kind of man he was. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting, isn't it? Like, you could be looking right at it, you know, and then you turn away and you're just like, I don't remember what sort of person I am. Uh, that's what it's like when we're... So, and isn't it interesting? Doesn't it kind of align that mirror with the Word? Like it says, those who are hearers of the Word, but they don't do it. You don't follow the teachings of the Word. If you're a hearer of the Word, but not a doer, you're like someone who looks at his face in a mirror. So while you're sitting there with a the mirror, you've got the information in front of you. You know, it, it tells you what kind of... The Word can tell us what kind of person we are. But if you're not following the Word, you just walk away and go do your thing again. You know, you, you, you're not changing. And so you immediately forget what sort of person. Like the Word just told you some good information and maybe it struck your heart and you felt like, oh, I've got to change or something. And then, but oh no, you walk away. And, and if you're not a doer of the Word, you immediately forget what sort of person you are. 
Okay, the um, something that Swedenborg says on this topic that I find very, very interesting is that it is almost impossible for human beings, uh, it's certainly extremely rare, according to what he says, for people to go through the process that he calls regeneration without suffering. People suffer. It is well known that human beings suffer. Uh, another passage in Swedenborg says the entire human race is in distress. Uh, now you would think if the Lord was with us, why doesn't he take away our distress? Why does he allow us to go through that? Well, one function that happens, uh, Swedenborg talks about it, that when you go through suffering, it breaks up that, you know, it breaks up that blockage that's in your mind. I, I want to go for an analogy here. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 13 because I want to think about this in, in these terms. Um, Matthew 13 is the parable of the sower. I'm sure it's very familiar to many of you. I find this, no matter how many times I go back to this, it has such amazing information in there every time I see it. So the sower goes forth to sow at the beginning of chapter 13 there, and four things happen. Let's read verse 5. Some of the seeds fell where? Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth. Okay. Stony places. Isn't that what we're talking about? A stony place is where you have that pride of heart, where you feel superior to Jesus, where there may be truth. You look in the mirror of the Word, and it tells you who you are, but as soon as you turn away, you forget all about it. You forget what sort of person you are because it's just like boing. And have you ever had that experience? Have you ever talked to someone? I was just thinking today of occasions in my own life where someone has talked to me to try to talk some sense into me. This was when I was younger and foolish, good friends. But, but the um, uh, bang, you know, just bounces like water off a duck's back or whatever they say, you know, just... Uh, Bounces right off, like I'm not hearing. I, I can't hear. I can't hear. So the Lord may be sending that truth. He may be holding up a mirror of some kind, but it's just like the, the seeds of truth are just bouncing right off the hard, hard walkway because there's no receptivity. It says, don't be just hearers of the word. You've got to be doers of it too. And then what was the next group in verse 7 there? Some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. Yes, that's right. Oh, I'm sorry. I missed one in verse 6. But uh, when the sun was up... Oh, I, I mean... Well, let's see. No, I no. Right. That's, that's part of the same one. That's right. Okay, no. That's right. Go ahead with 7. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop. Some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. What am I missing here? So, no, the first one is the wayside, which is in verse 4, actually, right? Uh -huh. And then 5 is where they don't have much earth. There are stony places that don't have much earth. And then 6, uh, the, I, I'm getting my verses and my steps mixed up here. But in number, like number 1 is the by the wayside, well trampled, and the birds just come and eat it. Like it just, birds uh, there correspond to false thoughts that are already lodged in your head, like that self-deception that's already present. So it just takes it out. Just like, oh, you don't need to be thinking that. 
just take it right out. So you may have an insight, but it'll disappear immediately. Then the second group doesn't have much earth, and they're able to spring up, but as soon as the sun comes up, they get scorched, and they have no roots. So there's a tiny bit of receptivity there, but not enough to really sustain it. As soon as things get difficult, and again, what the sun means in a passage like this where it has a negative meaning is it means the love of self. When some love of self just kind of kicks in, you know, the word, no, that trumps the truth that's, that's trying to uh, bear fruit in us. And then the third group is the thorns where it has decent soil, but it's already full of other things. And they just choke it out. It, you know, it doesn't have a chance to last. And those thorns, uh, Swedenborg says, mean these various lusts and uh, other things that are already in. You know, it might be falling into our heart now, uh, but our heart is already full of other stuff and we can't, we can't take it in. But this group in verse 8, the fourth group. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He Go who on. has ears to hear, let him hear. Yes, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Uh, isn't that what we've been reading about tonight? That if you have ears to hear, if we're not following the word, we don't have those ears. So it's tricky to try to understand how you move from A to B. But I think it's rather subtly presented here in a way that I have thought of this as being developmental, that we start out just hard as a rock, and then we get a little soil, and then we get more soil, but we're full of weeds, and then finally we become good ground. And uh, the Lord is trying to bring us through those stages. They seem a lot like the stages of the seven days of creation to me, which is also about developing viable soil, isn't it? At certain points in the story there that you want to get good ground and things start to grow up and then animals can live there. And um, so it's still kind of a bootstrap. Well, it would be a bootstrap deal if there were no God. And because of the way that our minds just, we have our own fixed ideas in them and everything, how are we ever going to get the idea uh, that we're wrong about something? Uh, as I was saying before, when you go through that suffering, when, when something gets your attention, when you're in pain, when you go through loss and so on, it can, it doesn't always do this. It depends on how we take it, again. But it can, if we're willing, soften us up. It can break up that surface of our mind and make us a little more receptive to the truth. So we start to realize, oh no, I've been an idiot. You know, I, I remember vividly from my younger days when I, I really thought God was angry with me and was very demanding and so on. And um, now I have such a, a different view. I just treasure, and I don't, you know, I, I know I don't have any understanding of who the Lord is, uh, uh, but it's better than it was. Uh, there's, there's something there, so that's nice. And it just seems like a lot of what helped along the way was just kind of getting kicked around by life and by the bad choices that, that I had made, or you know, the, the consequences of, of things. And uh, uh, eventually coming to have some compassion, uh, eventually coming to a different understanding, eventually starting to get interested in what the Word was saying and saying, say that thing about repentance again, and what was I supposed to be doing, and becoming a little teachable 
if there were no living God, uh, it would be hopeless, wouldn't it? I mean, how could you ever escape the gravitational pull of your own certainty? You know, you, you'd never get outside yourself to see the way anything truly is because it all gets filtered through your crazy mind. And, and our minds can be absolutely the opposite. You know, we can perceive absolute falsity instead of truth, and we can be absolutely certain that we're right about what we're seeing. That process of how we come to understand that, well, no, actually, Jesus is not a Samaritan. He was a good person. No, he doesn't have a devil. He's the opposite. He's able to kick the devil out of us. Uh, he's not actually a glutton. He's not a wine. You know, he may have eaten and he may have consumed some wine. Uh, he, he's not out of control. Uh, he's a good person. So what is it, what is it in, in the human mind that think we, we do have this idea? It's sort of like the end of Luke 16 there where the, the, um, the rich man and Lazarus and where the rich man is down in hell. And he says, well, go, Lazarus, send Lazarus back to tell my brothers about what's going on down here in hell. And, and the reply he gets is if, he, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't listen to somebody if they come back from the dead. Uh, it's the same deal, isn't it? It, it, there's something in the mind that thinks, well, if only, you know, if somebody came back from the dead and told you, or the Lord walked right in and said, listen, here's who I am. So the thought that he manifested in this world, that the Lord came into this world, and you look at his life, I don't know how you feel, friends, when I look through the testimony of Scripture, I, to more and more, I just see this amazing compassion and love and truth and wisdom and teaching and leniency and understanding, but strength against hell. Uh, just a magnificent, beautiful, lovable person. Uh, and you would think, well, if you just bumped into somebody like that, you know, that would set you straight. Uh, but it's not true. We're capable, we're perfectly capable of denying Jesus or not seeing who he is or having all kinds of wrong ideas about him. We're very capable of misunderstanding. Mm, look at verse, it just suddenly leaps out at me. Look at Matthew 13, verse 13. Don't know if you're there. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. There's another answer to our question tonight, isn't it? That the, the parables are sneaky sort of corner shots. Like rather than trying to give you straight up truth, he'll just tell a story that you go, well, wait, what was that story about? I didn't get that. What did you say? It seems unfair. You know, and you try to you play around with it in your mind. And so and it, it's, he says expressly there that the reason he spoke in parables was because we don't understand. You know, we, we don't hear, we don't understand. And so that's a, that's a way of trying to draw us in the direction of truth out of this position of misunderstanding. I can't imagine what it must have been like to be the Lord um, and to have, you know, just to have these yahoos telling you you're a Samaritan, you have a devil. Uh, it's, it's amazing. I, I mean, even there again, he, okay, he'll say, I don't have a devil, but, you know, here's what's going on or, or whatever. It, um, he seems pretty, pretty patient to me with people. 
Another thought that I have on my mind tonight, friends, is that uh, I sometimes think, I mean, this is certainly what Swedenborg says, that for a couple of thousand years, even Christianity, which should have the best understanding of Jesus, has not really understood who he was. You know, there have been a number of different theories about him, but I, I would put them down to a, a couple of different theories. One is the idea of the Son of God born from eternity, that there were three gods and that, that one of them had always existed and was there at the beginning. And we've done other Bible studies on this before. And then that Son of God was born into the world, but he was separate from God the Father and God the Father was was upset with the human race and wanted to condemn it. And Jesus thought that if God the Father saw him bleeding, that God the Father would feel sorry for him and would take away, lift the damnation from the human race. And then you could be saved as long as you were wearing the cloak of Jesus' merit or wearing the, you know, the blood of, of the good thing that he did. Then you could kind of sneak into heaven even though you're evil. Uh, you know, that is not a very good understanding, in my view, of who Jesus is. Or was, and yet it's got scriptures and it's got certainty, and it's no, definitely, and there are millions and millions of people who say, no, that's how it is. That's who Jesus was. Uh, from Swedenborg's standpoint, that's a massive and actually very corrosive and dangerous misunderstanding, partly because it splits God into several different pieces, and one of them, the Jesus one, is lovable. The other guy is not at all lovable, like you don't love him. And yet, the verse says, God so loved the world that he, you know, it, like it doesn't fit with the scriptures and so on. We've done many Bible studies about that before. But another one is that Jesus was an enlightened master. He's a jolly, nice individual, super, super guy, um, uh, but not the living God, not the one God of heaven and earth manifest in the flesh. Uh, the way Swedenborg tells it, the, the spiritual history even Christianity, you know, that's been like a couple of thousand years of pretty profound misunderstandings, not quite to the point of saying you're a Samaritan or you have a devil, uh, but not all the way there to really a perfect understanding of who that is. I've been reading John lately, and, and um, he says amazing things in, in, in John. You know, he says, you're from below, I'm from above. Uh, he says, I'm the light of the world. He, he says things that are kind of hard to reconcile with the jolly nice guy, you know, the, the mere human being who's just awfully nice and, and decent and got killed and so on. Uh, it's not what I see in the pages of Scripture. I think that's a misunderstanding of who that was. He says, before Abraham was, I am. And they took up stones to, to kill him for the blasphemy and everything. Uh, if you really read the testimony of the Scripture, I, I, I think it's... You know, but that's it. Different people have different mindsets and they look at it in different ways. And, uh, but some of these, the problem, uh, it's very tricky because when you have those ways of looking at it, the most dangerous concept is the idea that you don't have to live by what Scripture says. That's the most dangerous because what we just read tonight is that only as you live by Scripture do you figure out who Jesus is and get a more, at least walk in the vague direction of having a decent understanding of who he is. It's an endless uh, project. It's something that angels work on all the time to get to know the Lord better 
and come into more deeper and deeper and more and more intimate understanding. And yet there's still as much distance between the angels uh, and the Lord as there is between the, the planet and the sun, Swedenborg says, that, that they still have to be shielded from the full reality. It's so much love and it's so much truth that we, we couldn't take the full thing. But we can get the angels get to a point where it's not upside down. They're not dead wrong. You know, it's not you have a devil and you're a Samaritan, a wine-bibber and a glutton. They get to the point of, of having a somewhat better understanding. Uh, can you turn to the book of Revelation? I think we'll just read one last scripture here tonight. Um, if you turn to Revelation and then turn to the left, you'll get to the epistles of John. And I want to go to 1 John 5. It's at the end of 1 John there. Hmm. Here's another little clue about how you get to be of God. Um, let's look at from verse 18 on. We know, 1 John 5. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin. Yes, and which order does that go in? Do you stop sinning first and then you're born of God? He said, as many as did receive him, he gave them power to become children of God, right? We read that in John 1. Uh, I think you have to stop sinning. What James said was you've got to lay apart the filthiness uh, and then, you know, have the meekness and accept with meekness that engrafted word. Go on. But he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. Yes. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Oh. And we know that the Son of God has come. And what did he do? And has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. There it is. Jesus Christ is the true God and eternal life. And what does it close with there? Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Yes, important not to have the wrong thing, the, the wrong idea of God or the wrong thing that you worship in your life. So what do we see there in verse 20? The Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know Him, that the Lord wants to be known. He wants to be in us and us in him. And that is only going to happen through two agencies, Swedenborg says, through love and faith, uh, uh, and faith having to do with truth. You know, love and truth are what you need. Uh, the, the Lord is only received in us in that which is from him in us. So we need to receive that love and that truth in order to come to a true understanding. So we know that the Son of God has come. Since we've been through that, moving away from wickedness and everything, then we know who the Lord is and that he came to give us an understanding so that we know that the Lord is true and we know that he is the true God and eternal life. That's the goal uh, that the Lord wants to bring us to. How on earth is it possible for the Lord? It's just so tragic the Lord knew it was going to happen. He knew exactly what was going to happen. But that for perfect love and perfect truth to come into the world and then just be grossly misunderstood. We haven't even dipped to, into all the ways the disciples didn't understand who he was. And the Lord would ask them from time to time, who do people say I am? And who do you say I am? And, you know, I mean, they, they had very little of a clue. Occasionally they, they got something that approximated a right answer. Um, but there was, there was very little understanding there.
Um, but when you think of the beginning of the creation story, the Spirit of God is hovering on the face of the water. When we are without form and void, when we have no understanding whatsoever, there is still an active force that's hovering over our mind and waiting. In the creation story, the Lord is the active one. He brings us into day one. He says, let there be light. He brings us into a greater understanding. Then in day two, he brings us into a deeper sense of the different kinds of truth. Day three, he brings us through repentance and so on. It's the Lord. If there were no active force, it'd be hopeless. We'd never get out of our misunderstandings, right? We'd never get out of our crazy. Um, what was the name of Joe Walsh's album? You can't argue with a sick mind or something like that. The, you know, if... if <laughs> You know, if your understanding is not such that it will allow the truth in, if that's sort of an enemy to your self-concept or something, how are you ever going to get bootstrapped out of there? The only way it works is for the Lord. The Lord is active, so He's looking for an opportunity. He never wishes us harm. He never wishes us to go through illness or, or tragedy or loss or whatever. But if we're going through that, he will use that opportunity to try to come in, soften our mind, give us a little more humility, you know, so that we can receive that seed. He's the one who really develops the good ground. We just kind of maybe say, okay. You know, we say, all right. We agree to the treatment, you know. Uh, the, but the Lord is the one who's able to work it in us until we turn into better and better ground and give us the truth so that it starts to grow in us and we start to see a clearer understanding. We have to cooperate as if of ourselves, but the more we do, the more we understand who the Lord is and the more we come into an understanding of who we are and the fact that we can do nothing of ourselves. Anything good in our lives comes from the Lord. So it's a bootstrap operation. It would be hopeless if the Lord were not active, but He is active, and He seeks every opportunity. And when you look back on your life, I don't know how you feel, friends. I just feel like it's a miracle that I ever got, you know, maybe I've only gone two feet in my spiritual life, but it's a miracle that two feet happened because I didn't used to be there. I used to have a different understanding. And it's the activity of the Lord. Uh, we falsely attribute it to ourselves but the Lord is able to bring us to a better understanding and show. He wants to reveal himself to us in the pages of his word. He wants to bring us forward bit by bit. The one thing that he pleads with us again and again in the pages of the words, the first verse we read tonight, is just do it. You've got to follow the instructions in the book. That's the only way you'll come to a, a better understanding. A perfect love. And perfect truth could be standing right in front of us, reaching out to us in every possible way. And if we've got our twisted mindset, we're not even going to see it. But if we allow, as we go through suffering, as we go through other things, we allow the Lord to soften us and bring us into greater truth, bit by bit. We can figure out who He really is and maybe even at some point say, I'm sorry about that whole Samaritan thing. You're actually a, a really nice person. <laughs> Thank you, friends. Shall we close with a prayer?
our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We pray for a better understanding of who you are. We pray for a better understanding of your word. We pray for help to sustain us as we're going through difficult times, Lord. Please give us that softer heart, that good ground that's ready to receive and understand who you truly are. Thank you for all the blanketing atmospheres that you put between yourself and us, though you would gladly take us up into yourself with all your love and all your truth. We thank you for taking it easy on us, allowing us to see you a little bit at a time, just another little glimpse. Help us forward on this journey and help us in our repentance. Our Father, who art in the heavens, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so upon the earth. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's keep on repenting, friends, so that we may truly know him.